back with everybody. If you uh, showed up last week, I'm sorry. I did put us a little sign up, which uh, said that, sorry, we missed you, but we were not here. So I, I've, I've actually been thinking about putting a little camera to see, like, you know, if people come up like, oh, you know. But a few times a year, we have what we call one church gathering, where the other Crossbridge uh, campuses in Miami Springs and Pinecrest, we gather together uh, a few times a year on the fifth Sundays, all the months that have a, five, a fifth Sunday. And uh, we did that down in Pinecrest this last Sunday, and it was awesome. If you, if you joined us uh, together with all the different churches uh, to come together to worship in one service, spend time eating a meal together. Um, I char- we charged you guys two weeks ago to bring the beer. You delivered. Thank you. We did. They kept saying, like, man, Brickle really brought a lot of beer. I was like, you ask us to bring the beer, we're going to bring the beer. That's what's going to happen. But I, w- I sat down and I started working through this passage this week. And uh, as we're jumping back into First Peter, and as we're continuing our series in Who You Are, and this is a difficult passage. If you've been working through this in personal worship as we do as a church, we kind of look through the passage and work through the passage individually uh, before we come on Sunday. This passage is not easy to swallow. I don't know if you're reading it, you're listening to it as Lauren read, you're like, man, that's difficult. And it was interesting for me because my week was a little bit of a rough week. Uh, it was unexpected. On Wednesday, I got a call that uh, the tenant, we have a house in Fort Lauderdale where we used to live before we came to the Magic City in February. And uh, so we have a tenant there and there was a rat problem. And uh, that's not good. And uh, so it smelled, it was an issue. And Terminex came and they took the dead rat out. But then Terminex decided, you know, they wanted to make some money. So they sent some contracts out like, hey, here's what you need to do to have a safe and clean environment. Well, as a landlord, I have to provide that. So Terminex wanted to charge me $1,200 to come and clean the attic. So what that meant was I had to go get up in the attic uh, with a mask and some yellow gloves and follow the CDC guidelines to clean out the attic of um, things that rats do and uh, bones and other such things that I found in the attic. Um, I'm pretty sure I breathed in some things I wasn't supposed to. That's very possible. I told Jessica later that night, she said, why are you feeling where I said, I feel like my esophagus is clean, but not in a good way. (laughs) That's kind of what my week was like in a nutshell. And uh, it was was interesting. I felt like God kind of had a sense of humor with me because we're dealing with a passage about suffering. And to me, that was suffering. Um, but Peter is talking about suffering on a much deeper level than, you know, inconveniences and, and difficulties that face our everyday life. He's talking about suffering for your faith, and he's talking about suffering when you don't do anything and there's no action um, by which is a result of your suffering. Kind of the suffering where you say, God, why did you allow this to happen? Why would you do this? The kind of suffering that makes you want to question God, the kind of suffering that seems pointless, that's the kind of suffering that Peter is speaking about. Tonight, there's a, a story um, in about 210 AD when uh, persecution was running rampant all over um, the known world. Uh, the Roman Empire was uh, killing Christians uh, left and right. If you were a Christian, you, uh, there's a strong chance that you uh, could be killed for your faith. And there's a story from some eyewitnesses that talk about um, this woman. Her name was Perpetua, and uh, she was imprisoned because of her faith. She was imprisoned uh, because she uh, believed in in the gospel and she believed in Jesus. She was from a noble birth. She was a wife. She was a mother. uh, And she was sent to jail uh, because of her faith. Also, uh, along the same time, there was also some other Christian men that were sent into jail alongside of her, as well as another woman uh, who was a slave, but she was also a Christian. And she was pregnant. 
And uh, they're in jail, the five of them. And it's a few days before they're going to send them into the arena um, to, to be killed. And uh, the slave woman actually gives birth two days before she's sent into the arena to be killed. And her father, Perpetua, as she's in jail, her father is a pagan. He's not a Christian. And uh, he's continually coming to jail every single day. Uh, the eyewitness accounts are saying that he keeps going and he keeps pleading with his daughter. He's saying, listen, just recount your faith. Just say you don't believe it anymore and they'll let you out. Do you know what's going to happen to you? You're, you're going to go into the arena and you're going to die a horrible, horrible death for something you believe. And here's what she says. She said, my father said, I said to my father, you see this picture? Can we call it by any other name than what it is? No, he said. Nor can I call myself by any other name than that of a Christian. So he went away. But the rumor that they were that he was tired and he wasted away with anxiety because of his daughter's faith. She was sent in a few days later to the arena. The men went in first where they let in leopards and wild leopards and bears and boars that uh, killed them in front of the uh, arena. And then the two women were let in with uh, a wild bull that gored them and uh, tore them tore them to pieces and the gladiators came in and killed them with the sword. And stories like these, when I hear that, right, you hear of like martyrdom, you hear of Christian martyrs that took place, you know, thousands of years ago, but it's taking place today as well, as we know, um, all over the Middle East in just one area. And you ask yourself questions like, I don't know if you do this, but I do. Could I endure that? Would I hold fast to my faith? Would I be willing to say to other people that are coming to me and saying, Carter, Carter, listen, just like recant and what I go to say, do you see this picture? Can we call it by anything other than a picture? No? Well, then I can never call myself other, anything other than a Christian. And that is what Peter is diving into tonight, is that those waters of persecution and suffering where Perpetua and many other martyrs have done nothing than just what they believe to deserve death or persecution or insults or ridicule or the loss of job and wealth or whatever it is. And yet... God allows those things to happen. Why? And how do we endure that? So that's what we're going to be looking at tonight. So if you look at the first verse, verse 12, if you could look in your worship program, if you have a Bible with you, here's what it says. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. See, this is his opening statement in a new section in the letter, and he's jumping to this focus on suffering. And, and Peter's not unfamiliar with suffering, right? We've talked about this. He's writing to a whole bunch of churches all over Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and they are exiles. They are scattered. They are spread out. They're being persecuted for their faith. And Peter understands this. He's suffering himself. Most of the people that he's writing to have lost jobs. They've lost all of their wealth. They've lost loved ones. They've lost friends. Maybe that they are facing imprisonment or being hunted because during this time, the emperor is Nero and Nero is famous for trying to wrangle and to pull together as many Christians as he can to kill. It was said during those times that the Christians' bodies filled the ditches along the side of the road. I told you this a few weeks ago, but Nero was famous for also taking Christians and putting them on a post, putting them around his garden for his parties, and he'd light them on fire so that the Christians would be human torches uh, for the parties, this is the, the context, right? So, so they're not unfamiliar with suffering. They are going through suffering like most of us could never imagine facing. And he says to them, 
Do not be surprised when fiery trials come upon you. He's comparing it to what it says in, in, in Proverbs 27, where uh, fire is something that purifies silver and gold. He's essentially saying to the audience and to us, God allows suffering sometimes. Don't be surprised. It's a normal aspect of life. But it's not purposeless. It's not as if God is just this distant, removed God. And he's like, yeah, suffering's a normal aspect of life. Everybody goes through it. Okay, there's no purpose behind it. There's no reason behind it. He's saying, no, no, there is. Actually, it's a fiery trial, meaning it is purifying. In some way that we may not understand, it is shaping us. It is molding us. It is changing us. It is renewing us. It is redeeming us. And then he says, this is normal. Don't be surprised when this happens. And look what he says in the next verse, which is the most difficult. He says, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. In scripture, the little words are really important. We talked about a few weeks ago that the word therefore is really important. Whenever you see that, you want to know what it's there for. You heard that in English class before, right? But the word but here is really important as well. Because he's saying, don't be surprised when trials come upon you, when you endure suffering. Suffering is a normal aspect of life. But he's about to say, I'm about to tell you something that you're to do that is not normal. That is not expected. But rejoice. Right? When we go through suffering, what is the normal response? The normal response is anger. Is resentment, is confusion, is doubting. In regards to our relationship with God or our faith, maybe we, we begin to distance ourselves from God. We, we kind of push him away because we, we, we think that he's unloving and there's no purpose behind it. And he says, but actually be different. He says, but rejoice. See, suffering is, is a really difficult thing for us in our culture. Uh, one of the main questions that most of us in this room have asked, I would venture to say probably every single one of us in this room have, have asked at one point, I have asked this question for many years and wrestled through it, is this, how can a good and powerful God allow suffering? Have you ever asked that question? Yes? No? Yeah, right? If you have never asked that, everyone in your office, in your condo, you ask that question, how in the world can God allow suffering? But see, we're missing a word in there, right? Because really the word that we're missing is this. How can an all-good and all-powerful God allow pointless suffering? That's really the question. Because we all understand that suffering as a response to our actions makes sense, right? So if you're married or if you're in a relationship and you cheat on them, you're going to face suffering. You expect to, right? If you make your job an idol to where it's everything in your life and you get laid off or you get fired or it doesn't go as you expected, you're going to suffer. It's going to be trying for you. If you drink too much, you're going to face the consequences and suffer for it. If you don't exercise and you don't eat well and you don't learn why kale is important, right, you're going to suffer the consequences of that. I'm still trying to figure out why kale is important. If you stay up all night and you binge watch Stranger Things and then you still have to go to work, right? You're going to suffer the consequences, but you may say it's worth it, possibly. But see, that's okay. We're, we're okay with suffering when it's the result of an action. What we're not okay with is what we deem pointless suffering, right? So disease, famine, child abuse, genocide, brutal regimes like the Nazis, like ISIS, like what happened during 
natural disasters. These type of things that are not a result of somebody's actions where people are innocent and they're afflicted with suffering. We're saying, God, why? You're supposed to be good. You're supposed to be powerful. How in the world could you allow this to happen? It doesn't make any sense. There's a, uh, a famous philosopher. His name is Alvin Plantenga. And, uh, Plantica. and I don't know if you've ever heard his uh, analogy on this before, but here's what he says. I think it's brilliant. He says, imagine a pup tent. Well, a pup tent apparently is one of those tents that pops up with a pole in the middle. So a tent with a pole in the middle. And he says, I, I want you to go inside and I want you to tell me if you see any St. Bernards, the big, huge, hairy dogs that I imagine playing in the snow. So I want you to go inside and tell me if you see any St. Bernards. So you go inside, you look around, you don't see any St. Bernards. It's not a very big tent. You come out and you say, I don't see any St. Bernards. He says, you can logically conclude that there are no St. Bernards in that tent, right? Now he says, I want you to go into the tent and I want you to tell me if you see any no If you're new to Miami, no are these little bugs that you cannot see and they bite you and then you have a rash and they itch. They're annoying. They're everywhere. So you go into the tent, you look around, you're looking for no and you don't see them and you come out and you say, hey... I don't see any no Well, that's the point, right? You can't see them. So he says, can you actually logically conclude that there are no no in the tent? No, you can't because you can't see them. He says, here's the problem. We make the assumption that because I cannot see a reason why God would allow suffering, therefore suffering can't exist. But what if the reasons behind suffering are more like no than St. Bernard's? What if we're just not able to see them? Because we assume that we have to see in our limited finite mind, we have to be able to see the reasons behind suffering like St. Bernard. But maybe God works in a way where the reasons are more like no where we don't have the right and the ability to say that God cannot allow suffering in that way and that he cannot be good and powerful because of that. See, I'll tell you this. We have a lot of, a lot of different thoughts on um, how God is still good and powerful and he allows suffering. But here's one of the things. We don't have a neatly packaged answer. And that's okay. But here's what we do have. We know that God is not removed from suffering. It's what he's telling us in this text. If you look in the Old Testament, a famous, famous character, one of the most famous is Job. In the book of Job, Job suffers like none of us hopefully will ever have to suffer. He has no idea why he's suffering. He, he loses his family. His wife turns on him. All of his money is stripped from him. He's physically tormented. I mean, he is going through everything. Everything is great in Job's life, and then it's just like suffering. And his friends keep coming to him, and they keep telling him, you need to turn on God. Like, I mean, why is this happening? See, for Job, the suffering was hard. It was confusing. It was difficult. You see him battling it. It's not like he enjoys it. He wants it to end. He's praying that it would end, but he never, ever, ever turns away from God in the midst of it. And the very end of the book, here's what he says. He says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me. Things more like no right? Which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you will make it known to me. 
I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. In the midst of Job's suffering, what is he brought to? He's brought to praise. He's praising God in the midst of this suffering. He's enduring everything every single one of us wants to run away from. He's enduring it all. He's facing it all. Everyone's turning on him. And he says in the moment that he sees a little glimpse maybe of why God is allowing this to happen. The verse, he says, I heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. He's saying, I I had heard of you before. I had understood who you are, God, but now actually I really see you. I really know you for who you are. And his response is, I need to repent. He hasn't done anything to incur this suffering, not by any actions of his own. But in the midst of that, he sees that maybe one of the reasons that he suffered was that he could really see God for who he is and experience his presence in a way that is unmistakable. And for Job, that was enough. But what's interesting about Job is when you look at his life, and maybe you're catching this now, uh, Job could never have imagined one of the other reasons maybe why God allowed suffering to come to him was for us. Job is one of the most famous stories that has been talked about in the church for thousands and thousands of years because we connect with it. It's encouraging to us. And God used Job for our behalf as well, for our sake, for our encouragement. And we might feel connected to him as we suffer and as we seek to endure faithfully as he did. But he never could have understood that. And and, and say, I think here's the thing about suffering that um, is really powerful to me personally. When I went through a period of asking a lot of different questions about how could God allow suffering. Is that actually when you look at it, suffering proves that God actually exists. I'm going to read you a quote. It's a little long, so bear with me, but it's worth it. It's, uh, it's by C.S. Lewis. It's one of my favorite uh, sections of any of his writings. And he says this. C.S. Lewis was an atheist at one time, and he kind of re- tells a story of how he came to believe. He said, if a good God made the world, why has it gone wrong? That's the question tonight. And for many years, I simply refused to listen to the Christian answers to this question because I kept on feeling whatever reason you say and however clever your arguments are, isn't it much simpler and easier to say that the world was not made by any intelligent power? Aren't all of your arguments simply a complicated attempt to avoid the obvious? But then that threw me back into another difficulty. My argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust, but how had I gotten the idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? If the whole show was bad and senseless from A to Z, so to speak, why did I, who was supposed to be part of the show, find myself in such violent reaction against it? A man feels wet when he falls into water because man is not a water animal. A fish would not feel wet. Of course, I could have given up my idea of justice by saying it was nothing more than a private fancy of my own. But if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too. For the argument depended on saying that the world was really unjust, not simply that it did not please. In other words, not simply that it did not happen to please my private fancies. Thus, in the very act of trying to prove that God did not exist, in other words, that the whole of reality was senseless, I found I was forced to assume that one part of reality, namely my idea of justice, was full of sense. 
Consequently, atheism turns out to be way too simple. If the whole universe has no meaning, we should never have found out that it has no meaning. Just as if there were no light in the universe and therefore no creatures with eyes, we should have never known it was dark. Dark would be without meaning. See, we may come to the place as we work through this passage, as we think, as we process, as we hear the brilliant words of C.S. Lewis, and we may say to ourselves, okay, I understand that suffering is normal. It's a normal aspect of life. I'm beginning to see a little bit that it's not pointless, that God would allow it just because I can't seem to imagine or to understand or to see a reason behind the suffering does not mean that therefore there isn't a reason. I may understand that God has called me to rejoice in the midst of suffering. I may understand that suffering actually does in fact prove that God exists. But listen, here's the reality. None of those things help me to actually rejoice in suffering, to actually endure. So how in the world do I endure suffering? Well, look what Peter says in the next verse, or in the verse we just read. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. We may not have a perfect answer for suffering. We may struggle with understanding it, but here's what we don't have. We don't have a God who is removed from suffering. What is Peter saying here? He's saying that when you suffer, something mysterious is happening. It's revealing something. It's showing something. It's that you're united to Christ. See, unity with Christ through faith means that we're not only united to his resurrection. We love that idea. That's great. That's wonderful. What a blessing from God. We're united to Christ in his resurrection, meaning we will gain victory over sin and death. We will be redeemed. We will be renewed. And we are continually and constantly being redeemed and renewed now. But we're also united in his suffering, in his death. And so Peter says, when you suffer, you are united to Christ in his death. You share in his sufferings. And it seems like a paradox, right? How in the world can I be glad and full of joy and rejoice in the midst of suffering? I mean, how does that happen? Peter is saying it happens because you realize that you're united, you're, you are united to Christ in your suffering. There's a woman in Haiti that I met. Um, after, during the earthquake, she had her leg uh, destroyed from rubble that had fallen down. And um, after the earthquake, uh, the organization that we're going to be going on the mission trip with, Mission of Hope, um, they brought in doctors from all over the world, Christian, non-Christian doctors. Anybody would come, lend a, lend a hand to help because one of the biggest needs during that time was amputation because people's arms and legs were crushed. And so um, this woman, she's about to have her leg amputated. She's laying on the table. The doctor that's about to amputate her leg is not a believer. He's not a Christian. And uh, they have, at this time, there's no medication. She has no painkillers whatsoever, nothing. Just, I don't know what you use, a saw, I guess. And uh, he looks at her and he says, are you ready? She says, I'm ready. As he starts cutting her leg, she starts singing Amazing Grace. And she sings it on repeat as her leg is being amputated. After the, uh, the surgery... They patch her up. She wakes up um, as she comes to. And the doctor comes over to her and she says, Ma'am, how did you endure that? I mean, you didn't flinch. You just stuck it through. And you were just singing this song over and over and over again. Amazing grace. She said, you know what? In the midst of my suffering, Christ was there with me. I, I was united to him. In the midst 
of my suffering. She, she understood that in suffering, mysteriously, uniquely, we are united to Christ because we're united to him in his suffering. We are sharing in it. And he is very near. He is not removed. God is not distant and uncaring. He's actually right there. The, the song we just sang a little bit ago, All Creatures of Our God and King, it was written after a poem by St. Francis of Assisi. It was inspired by a poem that he read. And St. Francis of Assisi was known that when he began to be persecuted for his faith, he went into the streets and danced for joy. Because he knew that he was united to Christ and Christ would be very, very present and very near in the midst of his suffering. One of my favorite verses, uh, passages in the entire Bible is in Hebrews 4. And, And here's what it says. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize or to empathize with us in our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted and suffered as we are. See, in verse 14, Peter says that if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Here's the wonder of the gospel. The wonder of the gospel is that God himself came in the form of a man and Jesus put himself on the hook for you. He suffered for you. And that in suffering, actually, God is more closely connected and tied to you than at any other moment because Peter is saying that you share in Christ's suffering and in suffering, the spirit of God rests upon you. And you may think to yourself, okay, I get it. You know, he's saying that God empathizes with us, but listen, you don't understand Carter, how I suffer. You don't understand how my friends are suffering. You don't understand what it's been like and what I've been through. I mean, I mean, Jesus was God, right? He was God. So how could his suffering be anywhere on the same level as mine? I don't have all the powers, whatever he, I don't have that. Well, see, here's a question. If I were to ask you, and some of you love animals, it's going to make you sad. But if a dog breaks its leg and you break your leg, you both break your leg, who suffers more? The dog or you? You're both suffering, but who suffers more? You do. Why? Because you're a higher state of being. You're going to suffer from more than just a broken leg. You're going to suffer emotional pain. You're going to suffer the loss of not being able to do your work. You're going to suffer, you can't play with your kids anymore. A whole, all types of things. Maybe you can no longer do what you used to do. You're going to, and you understand it. So because you're a higher state of being, you're going to suffer much more. How much more do you think God suffered then? God in the flesh. How much more did he suffer? So to, to, to think that God doesn't empathize, he doesn't understand He's not compassionate and merciful and gracious and near to us in the midst of our suffering. It's just not to understand who God is and it's not to understand the beauty of the gospel. And this is the beauty of the gospel. This is what enables us to rejoice and to be glad and to suffer well. Is because God got into our mess to redeem our mess. He came here, he suffered, he endured, he was tempted, he was humiliated, he was brutalized, he was murdered for our sake so that we might be redeemed. Look how Peter ends it. He's saying all of these things. He said, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed. Why? Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Look what he says at the last verse, verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. He says, listen, your suffering is not purposeless. God may allow it. 
but it's not purposeless, and God is not removed from it. It's not as if he's not compassionate and empathetic. He understands he suffered more, deeper than you have, and he's there. He put himself on the hook for you. He came to redeem your mess. He understands he's there in the midst of it. And so when you suffer for things that seem pointless, where you can't seem to find a reason, where you've done nothing to deserve it, don't be ashamed of your faith. Don't be ashamed of God as if he's unloving, because he's not. His love never fails. We've sang that two songs in a row. He loves you and he's there in the midst of that and he is faithful if you entrust your soul to him. He is faithful. He says, don't suffer like a murderer, an evildoer, all these things because listen, if you murder someone, you're gonna suffer. That makes sense. We're okay with that. He said, don't do those things. Suffering that way makes sense. But he's, he's warning us, you are going to suffer for things that seem pointless, for things that you have done nothing to deserve. And for things that you can't find a reason why. And he says, don't be ashamed. Don't turn your back on God. Know that he is faithful to continue and he will be faithful with your soul. And he will be very near to you in the midst of that. Essentially, it's the idea that he is going to, at one time, we see this in a letter, resurrect you. You will rise. You will be resurrected to an imperishable and unfading and unending inheritance, as Peter says in the, the first chapter. See, the idea of resurrection is not just in the Bible. The idea of resurrecting to an afterlife is seen in many other religions, right? Eastern religions have the idea of resurrecting to an all-soul, where you lose consciousness, you kind of just lose everything, body, consciousness, all these things, and you kind of go into this nirvana, right? And then other Western religions have the idea of an afterlife as well. But the afterlife uh, of other Western religions is that you leave your body and you go to this non-material place, Again, the Christian idea of resurrection and redemption and afterlife, the inheritance that Peter speaks about that's promised for you, the reason that you can feel like your soul is safe and sleep well because the God of the Bible has it in his hands is a very different idea of an afterlife. It's an afterlife that is redeemed. It's an afterlife that is where God comes down to cleanse and renew the earth. See, I think we have this idea sometimes that heaven is a consolation for the life we lost, right? But that's not the biblical idea of heaven. The biblical idea of heaven is actually that heaven is the restoration of your life. It's the redemption and the renewal of your life. It's the idea that you're going to receive a life greater than you ever imagined, greater than you were able, ever able to live out now in this life. It's a life that you want to live now, but you can't because of sin. That will be your life, a life of hugs, a life of laughs, of conversations, of experiences, of relationships. It's a life that you want now, but you can't because of sin. That is what is guaranteed to us. That is what we have entrusted our soul to God. And he is going to be faithful with that amidst our suffering that may be purifying in some level for us, even when we don't see the reasons my favorite movie of all time, because it is the greatest movie of all time, is Lord of the Rings. And if you uh, reject that, you're wrong. Sorry. Uh, and I, I count Lord of the Rings as one movie, all three of them as one, the extended editions. And it's like 25 hours long. Because it's one book, right? It's one story. So it's one movie. And uh, my favorite quote in the movie, it's quoted a lot because it's phenomenal. It's near the end of the movie. And uh, Sam is looking at Gandalf. And he, said, he realizes that everybody that he thought was dead is not dead. And he looks at Gandalf and he says, I thought you were dead. I thought I was dead. Is everything sad going to come untrue? You see, the gospel tells us that the answer is yes. 
Everything sad will come untrue. The suffering, the injustice, the oppression, it all comes untrue. It all gets renewed and redeemed and restored because Jesus says at the very end of Revelation that he is going to what? Make all things new. See, this is what we have to hold on to, the faithfulness of our God. He is loving, he is purposeful, he empathizes, he understands, and he is near to us. Jesus compares God uh, to a vine dresser, right? Cutting and taking care of the vine. And he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. And he tells us that sometimes God has to come and he has to cut away dead parts of the branches, right? So that the branches can grow, they can thrive, they can flourish. So here's the question. When, you, when, when God is pruning, right? When he's cutting away at us, it's difficult, it hurts. Sometimes he cuts away things we don't want to have removed. But when is God most near to the branches? It's when he's cutting, right? That's what Peter's saying. He's saying that never, ever, ever think that in your suffering, God is distant and he's removed and he doesn't care and he doesn't love you or he's mad at you. Actually, God is most near to you in the midst of suffering. That is where he's closest. When you are most weak, God is most near. That's the reality of the gospel. That's the truth that we see here in 1 Peter 4. And so it gives us to be unexpected in suffering. It gives us the ability to rejoice. It gives us the the ability to be joyful, to be glad, to hold on to our faith, to be willing to suffer and to endure. When you go to uh, developing nations, if you go to Haiti, uh, one of the things you always ask yourself, I mean, at least I do, maybe you will as well, You say, how do these kids and how do these families that seemingly have nothing and live a life that I could never imagine living where I haven't eaten a meal in four days, how do they laugh and how do they smile and how do they worship? How do martyrs hold on? How did Perpetua stay in the jail and know what she was going to face and do it? How did the Haitian woman allow her to stay strong in the midst of suffering and losing her leg and actually lead somebody to faith in the process? How do these people go through it? How, 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 how? It's because they believe. They believe that God is near. They believe that God gives us the power to persevere, to rejoice when we're weak. They understand the gospel, that God loves us and his love never fails and he is most near to us when we're suffering. My prayer for myself and my prayer for all of us is that when we suffer, because we will, and you will, that we realize that God is loving and he is there and he is right next to us. And that we can sleep well because our soul is entrusted with a faithful creator. Let's pray.